You know, we are, if elected president, going to invest a lot of money into mental health. And when you watch these Republican debates, you know why we need to invest in mental health. Ain't it true? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii. Where they are having uh, Republican caucuses today on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. And up on up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Coast to coast and blanketing the globe. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio. Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and of course, Radio Sputnik five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, the good news, today's interview on the broadcast will uh, will be a welcome and much-needed break from presidential politics, even as voters head to the polls today to vote in the great states of Mississippi and Michigan, and uh, for uh, Republicans only in Idaho and Hawaii. The bad news, this week marks the fifth anniversary of the triple disaster earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster, which struck Japan in March of 2011. So the interview will relate to that. So, you know, a mix of, uh, of good and bad. Uh, speaking of a mix of good and bad news, hello, Desi Doyen. Hey. I don't even know what that means. I don't either, I, I, but I, hey, I'll I, take I, it. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, I tell you, Des, I recall watching live on CNN Five years ago, which seems uh, both like yesterday and forever ago, as the uh, the sea, remember this, as the sea overtook parts of eastern Japan. Yes, it was, it was happening in the middle of the day in yeah. Japan, and they had news helicopters that were out there watching and, and, and tracking this, this massive tsunami as it came and swept across northeastern Japan. Uh, yeah, we saw that live as it, uh, as it s- happened. swept in. Uh, folks on the east coast, uh, it was very, very late on the east coast. I think it was about 2 a.m. out here in California, if, if I recall correctly. Um, and then... Uh, I can't recall if it was on Twitter or where it was uh, as I was following this, as I was covering it at bradblog.com as it was ongoing. Uh, we got the news about some kind of explosion at a nuclear plant in the Fukushima prefecture. And I, I you know, I <laughs> it, it was amazing because that was one of the first things that, uh, you know, came up questions about the nuclear plants. And I think they had uh, at the time about. 44 different plants around the around Japan 
And uh, most of them, I think, had been shut down immediately from the earthquake or whatever procedure that they go into after an earthquake. Yeah, it's they, not they, a, they, they a have shutdown, an, right? They, yes, they do. Actually, they have an automatic trigger shutdown that occurs at all nuclear power plants in Japan. That's what they did. But, of course, that doesn't uh, relieve the danger of the nuclear fuel Certainly in not. these reactors. It takes some time to shut them down. And uh, there was that word of that explosion. We were trying to figure out what it was. It was a hydrogen explosion that had built up in the plant. Uh, well, uh, folks know what happened thereafter. At least we have some idea of what happened thereafter. We still don't have the full story. And the company that runs the plant still runs it to this day. Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, has still been less than forthcoming, it seems to me, about uh, what actually went on and what actually continues to go on today. Some uh, 18,000 subsequently died, uh, not from the uh, nuclear disaster there, but from the earthquake and the, uh, the tsunami. Uh, they are 18,000 died, still listed as missing from that triple disaster. And the nuclear disaster itself at Fukushima Daiichi still continues to this day. We spoke just hours after the, after the disaster with Steve Herman. Uh, I was following him that night uh, because there was a lot of reports. As I said, folks on the East Coast out here were asleep. But um, those of us on the West Coast sort of got to jump on this story. And uh, I, I recall, uh, you know, listening to uh, Japanese uh, news sources at the time on Twitter, which was incredibly valuable that night. Uh, reporters in Japan uh, we're doing a great job of covering the story. One of them was Steve Herman. D fantastic job uh, covering it for Voice of America News. He was their Northeast Asia Bureau chief at the time. He's now uh, VOA's Bangkok Bureau chief. And we will talk to him uh, in Bangkok momentarily, as we did just hours after the original disaster. We'll talk to him again about what he reports now is a continuing, ongoing, and in some ways getting worse nuclear disaster at that now crippled plant in Japan where as many as four reactors, four reactors, are believed to have melted down as we mark the five-year anniversary of that continuing disaster. So see what I mean about the good news and bad? Now you missed, now see, now you miss the presidential stuff, don't you? Surely see? you want to say something about Trump in Be, there somewhere, see, right? I know, sort of lighten see? things up a little. Be careful what you wish for. Well, we'll we actually got a little bit of, of that before we uh, before we turn to uh, Steve Herman in Bangkok. Uh, there are primaries being held today in Michigan, in Mississippi, as I said, for both Republicans and Democrats in, uh, in Idaho and Hawaii. In Idaho, it's a primary. For Republicans only in Hawaii, it's a caucus for Republicans only. So those numbers will come in very, very late tonight. We'll talk about all of those results, no doubt, on tomorrow's broadcast. Um, we have been talking yesterday. I spoke uh, about specifically about the results from Super Saturday or the Super Saturday weekend that took place. Uh, but we've been talking for the last week or two 
about the way that the uh, corporate media has been reporting the delegate counts on the Democratic side, where they've got these super delegates, as they uh, refer to them. What they are is unpledged delegates, delegates who have not yet voted, delegates who are actually uh, party insiders and elected officials and so forth. They don't have to cast their vote. They won't cast their vote for either Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton until the conventions this summer. And yet some of these super delegates have spoken to the media and said, yeah, I I support Hillary or I support uh, Bernie Sanders, many more of them supporting Hillary Clinton. But their votes are not set in stone. They are not uh, pledged delegates like the the bulk of the delegates that people are actually voting for right now in uh, places like Michigan and Mississippi and so forth. Uh, by the way, the good, the good news uh, in Michigan, they use paper ballots for most of the state. So if there's any question about the results, we may be able to figure out who actually won or lost. Not necessarily the case in Mississippi, where that state continues to hate their voters so much, they force almost all of them to vote on 100 uh, percent unverifiable touchscreens across the state. So if there's any question about the results, yeah, probably won't be able to figure it out. Now, you know. Because nobody else tells you other than the broadcast, apparently. Uh, but anyway, going back to the weekend. Um, so I, I noted uh, that over the weekend, uh, Bernie Sanders won not only three of the four states that were up uh, having nominating contests in Kansas, New, uh, Nebraska and Maine, where Bernie Sanders won. Those were caucus states. Hillary Clinton reportedly won the Louisiana primary. Um, but in the end, Bernie ended up winning more delegates than Hillary Clinton. Now, yesterday I gave you the number. This was just over the weekend. So he got 67 delegates. Hillary got 65 delegates. That's according to uh, Google's uh, delegate tracker. Uh, other delegate trackers are a little bit different over at Real, Real Clear Politics. They're reporting for Super Saturday weekend that it was uh, Bernie getting 64, Hillary getting 62. In any event, in both cases... Bernie won by uh, Bernie won the weekend and he beat Hillary in the delegate count by two delegates, which is, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, it that's a tie. Uh, but Bernie came out ahead of Hillary and uh, and also in the states, three out of four states. And yet the way the media continues to report it is that Hillary is trouncing Bernie, that Bernie has no chance. He can't come back. It's a now. She she is beating him in the actual pledged delegates by just about 187. Now, today alone in Michigan and Mississippi combined, there are 166 delegates up for grabs next Tuesday. Uh, there are more than almost 700 delegates combined between Florida and Illinois and Missouri and North Carolina and Ohio. So, you know, she has a lead, but this is anything but over. The voters in the bulk of the country have yet to speak. And yet I've been highlighting as as uh, we've been talking over the past week or so, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, AP, Google. They are all reporting the delegates, the total delegate count, even including the non-committed, non-pledged so-called superdelegates. And if you look at that number, well, it looks like Bernie doesn't have a chance. Uh, if you look at the actual number of delegates that people have voted for after the weekend, uh, it was a 658 for Hillary, 471 for Bernie. Again, 
187 delegate lead, but compared to the number of voters that remain out there to vote, uh, anything but insurmountable. At least it would seem to me. But it's not just the corporate media. It's not just New York Times, Washington Post, uh, AP, Google, etc. Even MSNBC is reporting it that way. Now, I, I don't have any reason to believe here necessarily that Rachel Maddow is trying to put her thumb on the scale, that she is in the tank for Hillary Clinton. And yet that is clearly the result when you look at the way that she even she is reporting on this race. I don't understand this. Uh, you know, it seems like the job, my job as someone in the media is to help inform the electorate. That seems to me my only job, in fact. That seems to me why I have constitutional dispensation for freedom of the press to inform the electorate, um, not to you know push them necessarily one way or another. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But when we're talking about the mainstream corporate media and the straight reporting and, and uh, you know, well, anyway, here was uh, Rachel Maddow last night talking about the weekend, talking about the Super Saturday weekend. And remember now, uh, Hillary does lead by 187 delegates, but you have to the, the, the winner needs 2,383. And we're talking about right now 187 vote, uh, 187 delegate difference between the two of them. And yet here was Rachel Maddow last night on her show. On the Democratic side, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders continues to trail mightily in the delegate count, even as he keeps winning states across the country. But when you look at their overall progress toward the nomination, that's about delegates. Uh, and this was the delegate hall for those two candidates this weekend. OK, stop it there for a second. So this was the delegate hall for the weekend. She's talking about Super Saturday weekend, which Bernie won by any count I can find, won the delegate count by two delegates. Rachel Maddow puts, a, puts up a graphic showing that Hillary Clinton actually won the weekend with 76 delegates to Sanders' 64 delegates. She beat him by 12 delegates, according to Rachel Maddow's uh, big old graphic. And there was no separation between the, uh, the, 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 the real delegates and the so-called super delegates who I would dare them, dare them, if they head into that convention this summer... In where are they, North Carolina or something this year? If they head into that uh, convention and Bernie Sanders has a majority of the voted for committed delegates, are you telling me that these party insiders are all going to vote for Hillary Clinton and take it away from the people? I don't know. Maybe they would. Maybe they would. But frankly, that's their problem, not ours, not our job in the media uh, to, to put the thumb on the scale in that way. And that was... Uh, that was Rachel Maddow doing it uh, in, in favor of uh, in favor of Hillary, saying that oh, she beat Bernie Sanders by 12 delegates. Well, no, she actually lost by two delegates. The other ones are just, you know, elected officials and insiders who went and told AP or somebody. Yeah, yeah, I support Hillary. I endorse her. She went on to do that not only for the uh, for the weekend haul that she said was all about delegates, but also for the for the delegate count overall. And. This is the daunting delegate lead that Sen Secretary Clinton holds over Senator Sanders overall. The daunting delegate lead. And she went on to show uh, one th uh, more than a thousand for uh, for Clinton 
and uh, 477 for Bernie Sanders, which is different than the numbers I have. But uh, in any event, a seemingly insurmountable 615 delegate lead, according to Rachel Maddow. So uh, that's what's going on in the uh, mainstream media. And again, you know, when I talk about this, it may sound like I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter that I'm trying to push you to vote for. No, I'm not. I've done this for other people as well. I've you know, done this in past elections. Uh, when the media is misreporting what is going on, when they are, for whatever reason, putting their thumb on the scale, whether it was for Ron Paul back in, uh, in 2012 or 2008, I covered it. I'm trying to even that uh, imbalance that the corporate mainstream, Dennis Kucinich, you know, again, uh, these candidates who are not taken seriously for whatever reason by the corporate media, despite the fact that voters haven't even had a chance to ring in on it. I think it's crazy. I think it's stupid, especially with something like uh, this, uh, this, this race between Hillary and Bernie. When you look at what the results would be this uh, this November if they went head to head, at least according to the polls we have, if they went head to head with Donald Trump or Hillary uh, or with Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. We've got new numbers in that regard in Michigan in Michigan alone. Uh, Hillary going head to head against Ted Cruz defeats Ted Cruz by seven points. That's pretty good. Sanders, on the other hand. Beats him by eight points, beats Ted Cruz by eight points, according to this Wall Street Journal NBC poll for Michigan. Hillary beats Donald Trump only by six points. Yet Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump by 12 points. So, again, the electability argument still seems to be in question when it comes to Hillary Clinton. So why are they doing this? I don't know. I will let you uh, we report you decide. Uh, you know, I have no evidence why this uh, MSNBC corporation uh, seems to be uh, helping out, or at least Rachel Maddow in this in this case seems to be helping out Hillary Clinton in the way they're reporting it. But yes, the way you report stuff does make a difference. Now, uh, despite that, uh, and and despite Democrats for so long telling us that uh, you know, oh, they'd love to go up against Donald Trump, they are finally beginning to echo what we've been saying on this show for months: that uh, be careful what you wish for. You know, if you're excited about uh, Trump becoming the 2016 nominee, you ought to be careful. And Democrats are now finally beginning to figure that out, according to Mike Lillis over at uh, over at the Hill, who quotes a number of Democrats saying, finally, yeah, we should never take Trump lightly. And I do think that he has an appeal to independents and blue collar Democrats, especially uh, that was uh, Congressman John Larson, Democrat of Connecticut, um, former head of the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, anyway, they are beginning to get it. I'll try to get to, to more of this uh, perhaps on tomorrow's show, and I hope we'll be able to take some callers on this. Um, but, uh, man, anyway, trying to uh, well, a lot of Fox News claims they're fair and balanced. We are actually trying to add some balance to this uh, to this process in our reporting. All right. A quick break and we will come back uh, with Steve Herman from Bangkok about the ongoing Fukushima nuclear disaster. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. 
Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Japan's prime minister at the time of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, Naoto Kan, recently revealed that the country came within a paper-thin margin, those are his words, of a nuclear disaster requiring the evacuation of 50 million people, according to Britain's Telegraph recently. Uh, They report that in an interview to mark the fifth anniversary of the tragedy, which is this week, Khan described the panic and disarray at the highest levels of the Japanese government as it fought to control multiple meltdowns at the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. He said he considered evacuating the capital, Tokyo, along with all other areas within 160 miles of the crippled plant and declaring martial law. The future existence of Japan as a whole was at stake, he said. Something on that scale, an evacuation of 50 million, he said it would have been like losing a huge war. Khan admitted he was frightened and said he got no clear information out of the Tokyo Electric and Power Company, otherwise known as TEPCO, the plant's operator, and that he was, quote, very shocked by the performance of his own government's key nuclear safety advisor, Quote, we questioned him and he was unable to give clear responses, he said. We asked him, do you know anything about nuclear issues? And he said, no, I majored in economics. More than 18,000 are confirmed to have died or are still listed as missing from the 2011 quake and subsequent tsunami. And the nuclear disaster still remains for tens of thousands of residents of the Fukushima prefecture within 50 miles of the crippled nuclear plant. Writing at Voice of America News, Stephen L. Herman recently reported that experts say Japan's nuclear energy problems are worsening five years after a massive quake unleashed a tsunami that melted down the the island nation's nuclear reactors. Nine million cubic meters of radioactive waste, much of its soil, are stored unsheltered in black bags throughout Fukushima, preventing tens of thousands of residents from returning home. And the problem is going to worsen before it improves, Herman reports for VOA. An estimated 13 million cubic meters of toxic soil is yet to be collected and technicians have yet to solve the contamination issue inside the Fukushima 1 nuclear power plant. Government and industry officials acknowledge cleaning everything up, including decommissioning the crippled reactors, will take at least another 40 years and cost as much as $250 billion 
And that timeline and the costs, reports Herman, considered overly optimistic by some industry experts, are based on nothing major going wrong. Herman writes that if one, uh, if another major earthquake hits and results in a tsunami, there will be a major setbacks. Uh, 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 this is according to the nuclear plant's current manager, Akira Ono. Thousands of workers are dedicated to keeping under control the plant's six reactors, four of which melted down or were severely damaged. Japan has decommissioned, has never decommissioned a nuclear reactor, much less reactors as damaged as those at the Fukushima Daiichi plant and has resisted offers from foreign companies, even to this day, to help formulate an adequate cleanup plan, according to Voice of America. Joining us now is Stephen L. Herman. He's an American correspondent, originally hailing from Ohio, but who has lived in Asia since 1990. He is currently the Voice of America's bureau chief in Bangkok, reporting on the South and Southeast Asia regions. As a journalist, he's logged well over one million miles and visited 69 countries and territories. We spoke to Steve here on the broadcast just days, might have even been just hours, I can't recall now, after the triple disasters of that record 9.0 magnitude quake and 45-foot high tsunami and nuclear meltdown struck Japan five years ago this week in March of 2011. At the at the time, Steve was uh, VOA's Northeast Asia Bureau Chief. He was based in Seoul, covering the Korean Peninsula and, J- and Japan. He was one of the few reporters, as I recall at the time, to actually visit the Fukushima Prefecture not long after its initial evacuation, which continues in many areas for miles around the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant until this day. Stephen L. Herman, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Brad, great to talk to you again. So good to have you here. Five years later, uh, it, it doesn't actually seem that long, uh, but uh, I, I covered it very closely at the time, as I know that you did. But in looking back uh, today and, and putting together my notes, I realized that I was I was focusing so much on the nuclear disaster at the time that I'm actually a bit foggy on the timeline of what actually happened in the timeline following the quake and the tsunami and the meltdown and the evacuation, the creation of that 50-mile exclusion zone around the nuclear plant. Uh, how long, do you recall how long, Steve, after the initial disaster that the evacuation actually happened and, and the towns and the villages in the area uh, did they have any time at all to clean up from the earthquake and the tsunami before they were evacuated, or were bodies and everything else still left there at the time that res- residents had to uh, had to flee? Well, the the areas um, where the quake caused or the tsunami actually caused the most damage, wiping out villages, that was a little farther north of mm-hmm. the areas that were evacuated. So there was some earthquake damage in Fukushima Prefecture, uh, but it was Miyagi Prefecture that mm. bore the brunt of the tsunami. So there, they were focused on on the quake, and then in Fukushima, as word came in of ominous uh, trouble at the nuclear power plant, the focus uh, shifted. In fact, we were on the ground, I think, just about 24 hours after the, the quake struck in Fukushima. We got the last flight into Fukushima Prefecture, and uh, when we were boarding that flight from Osaka, they were contemplating canceling the flight because of concerns about uh, a possible meltdown 
of the uh, nuclear power plant. Mm. So by March 12th, there were already strong concerns, and then in subsequent days, uh, we saw m- uh, more um, alarms being sounded about the, the, the situation at, at Fukushima 1. So there were no, uh, it was not the case that there was, you know, bodies and, and rubble still left in place in some of these villages. Th- those uh, villages were all outside of the exclusion zone. So we don't have bodies sitting there uh, five years later, to my knowledge, do we? No, there's nothing like that. Okay. And even in the communities closest to the nuclear power plant, people have been permitted uh, to return to their homes for periods of time. And in some communities, I just read about one community near the plant, uh, approximately 6% of the population uh, has returned. Uh, they spend time there during the day and then leave at night. Um, older people don't have the strong concerns about the radiation exposure mm. that, say, a young family w- with little children would have uh, living in these uh, communities for years. And uh, a lot of these people were farmers. They had crops, uh, they had cattle, uh, and so for them to to leave these areas, it was a, it was a total loss for them, even if their properties weren't uh, damaged by the quake. Uh, now, are, are there still towns, some villages, I, I, I think I recall reading, that uh, are still off-limits, uh, off are still part of an exclusion zone around uh, what, 12 miles or so from the plant, uh, are those towns still off-limit uh, to your knowledge? And if so, does that mean that basically these these towns are, are sitting there sort of frozen in time from five years ago, dishes still in the sink and, and, and so forth, uh, as we saw in, in uh, some of the area around uh, Chernobyl after that meltdown? I, I've been to uh, Chernobyl, and it is extremely eerie there because that place was absolutely frozen in time and uh, people were essentially told to to leave and were never permitted to go back. Uh, But in the Fukushima exclusion zone, families have been able to return for periods of time. Mm -hmm. And there are some stubborn people who have gone back or or never left. Uh, Some elderly people said, you know, I'm 82 years old, uh, and and very pragmatically said by the time anything, uh, you know, from radiation is going to, uh, you know, affect me. Uh, something else is going to kill me before that. Uh, but uh, obviously, there are communities where it still does look like um, a, a, a ghost town in this 20-kilometer uh, exclusion zone. Uh, but there is partial life, I would say, within the exclusion zone in some communities now. People have been permitted to go back, so it's a very mixed picture. So, so that was not a mandatory evacuation. Some people chose to stay throughout that uh, that disaster. Yeah, yes, it was essentially mandatory, but um, the Japanese authorities did not go in and physically remove the, the mm. small number of, of mostly elderly people who decided for one reason or another to uh, to, to stay behind. But I would say ninety nine point. Nine-nine percent of mm. the people uh, did leave the exclusion zone uh, temporarily or permanently. Steve Herman, your recent article on the continuing problems at Fukushima describes four of six reactors which either melted down or were severely damaged. Do we know definitively at this point, five years later, how many of those reactors actually melted down and breached their, uh, you know, the, the concrete and steel encasements? Uh, or is uh, def- it? St- yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, de- definitely uh, uh, three of of the reactors, and um, 
I, I can tell you something that uh, you know, I didn't wasn't able to talk about at the time. I did have a source while I was in Fukushima, a source from another Japanese utility that had uh, nuclear power plants, who told me uh, during that week of March 11th that three of the reactors had uh, melted down, but it was a single source. I didn't have, I couldn't get a second source on that, so I didn't mm. put that on the air. Um, at the time, we sort of uh, erred on the side of, uh, of caution mm-hmm. on that. But it, it's been known from very early on that um, three of those um, reactors, um, you know, were, were were melted down when we're talking um, core level, and hence that is the problem on the site that you have this uh, cleanup effort that is uh, going to last decades and cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, 40 years is the official estimate, costs around $250 billion. But you talk to a lot of people and uh, who, who are experts in the field, and they say that is a very optimistic figure. It's probably going to take much longer and cost much more. And uh, this, uh, the burden of this uh, being borne by the Japanese taxpayers. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm kind of confused even to this day about how many of them actually melted down is because even now, the reporting seems to be unclear, and I see different numbers, and it seems like they're still at best guessing it. Uh, is that because uh, TEPCO is still, you know, that it's too hot to go in there and confirm these numbers, and they're allowed to be vague at this point? Uh, is well, it still yeah, that you can't. Physically, no one can can go in in the reactor rooms. There have been some uh, uh, robots. Uh, with cameras that mm-hmm. have been sent in um, uh, to some of the buildings uh, inside, but uh, to try to shield this equipment properly so that uh, even the, uh, the, the video transmission systems will work is, is extremely challenging. I think there's, you know, definitely um, the assumption of, 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 the, of the worst case scenario. Uh, with uh, with three or four of the reactors, I think there's a question mark about the exact condition of the uh, fourth reactor. And um, basically, the, the the plan is 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 just to contain uh, the situation, deal with um, um, keeping uh, everything cool, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and and you know working on um, the. Uh, uh, decommissioning process as prudently as possible. Um, we just had some statistics the other day come out that 32,000 workers uh, received an annual dose of five millisieverts mm-hmm. at the plant. That's considered the leukemia compensation threshold. 174 of those workers uh, had an annual dose of 100 uh, millisieverts, which is um, uh, believed to increase your risk of dying by cancer by 0.5%, and then there was one worker who actually received a, a dose of about five times that um, mm. particular um, uh, risk um, uh, threshold. So um, it, it is a dangerous work, and um, they have to proceed very um, prudently. And it's going to go on for years and years, decades, actually. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, you describe that uh, even after uh, five years now, after the disaster, there seems to be no real cleanup plan for how to dispose of all the contaminated fuel and soil and water that, that continues to pile up. But uh, does that mean 
that uh, new soil, new water is being contaminated still every day? Or is this a matter of just pulling out what is, uh, you know, what was initially contaminated after the disaster? In other words, is this ongoing, not just the cleanup, but the continuing contamination? Is that still going on each and every day out there? Yes, you you, you have um, water. Uh, and then you have uh, the soil, and the soil itself is being collected outside uh, the premises of the nuclear power plant. Uh, Nine million cubic meters of radioactive waste uh, are stored on shelter in these black bags, as you mentioned from my story, mm-hmm. throughout the prefecture. And then it's estimated there's another 13 million cubic meters of toxic soil uh, that's been yet uh, uh, to be collected. And then you have these uh, barrels with the um, uh, radioactive uh, water uh-huh. uh, that are also on site. Some of that has been um, uh, discharged um, into the um, ocean, uh, and there are processes to um, to um, um, uh, get the get the water to to levels that that are not of extreme concern. Uh, but there is a continuing buildup of more stored water. And um, uh, mm. one um, a consultant I talked to, an American, a former U.S. diplomat, says that Tokyo Electric Power can't decide what to do with all of it, and, and they refuse to let any uh, foreign experience program management companies uh, come in and, and help them out with those companies that haven't had experience with uh, decommissioning uh, nuclear power plants in other countries. So there is a, somewhat of a sense of a stubbornness by Japan to keep uh, this all in the, in the, in the closed system, in, the, in its um, notorious uh, nuclear village, as anti-nuclear uh, groups would call it. Is that a stubbornness within Japan, or is it TEPCO? In other words, is TEPCO a separate entity from the Japanese government? I mean, they're a private company, as I understand it. So wh- what exactly right. is the relationship between the two, and why hasn't the... Why hasn't the government simply taken over the entire project at this point, giving, given the continuing failures demonstrated by TEPCO? Why is this up to them at all as far as how this will be cleaned up? Who is making these decisions, Japan or well, TEPCO? Yeah, there is a, um, a very tight and long-term relationship um, involving Tokyo Electric Power, part of the so-called nuclear village uh, with, with very large and powerful Japanese corporations who are major contributors uh, to the political parties in Japan, namely the Liberal Democratic Party, which is actually the conservative party, uh, it, which is in power right now. They also have a, a tremendous uh, influence uh, over the media as well. Uh, so uh, there's um, been a lot of criticism that uh, there is this nexus uh, of information control and um, and also controlling all the work uh, to keep it uh, within um, um, these organizations. And uh, as I said, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars mm. of uh, spending that's going to occur over um, many decades. So you could say that this is actually... Uh, a very, very uh, lucrative uh, industry in its own. Mm-hmm. Just talking about the um, uh, the cleanup effort. Mm. So um, yeah. uh, there are obviously uh, people that are very critical of uh, of 
these sort of procedures and, and this information control. And and I want to ask a little bit more about the government, but you you write also, Steve, that uh, even if Fukushima residents within with homes inside the exclusion zone are allowed to return, that thousands of bags of radioactive soil in the prefecture may give them pause. And then you go on to describe what must be a typo. You say that. Uh, at this point, the debris is being stored at 115,000 different locations? Do, did you have uh, that, that right? That is, yeah, so we've triple-checked uh, that uh, figure. That is, <laughs> that is absolutely right, uh, because there's no interim facility to, uh, to, to store um, all of these. Um, uh, they're, they're planning to build an interim facility that would cover, um, uh, you know, 16 square kilometers in two towns close to the um, to the nuclear power plant, but of course nobody uh, wants to have that next to their towns and uh, and then uh, moving moving all of this. Uh, mm. There there is still a sense of uh, going very slow, or some critics might say almost a paralysis in um, uh, dealing with this issue. It, it is just a, a daunting um, a task and um, incredible. Uh, yeah, it, it does seem incredible to a lot of people that there has not been more progress. But you have to understand when we're talking about the scale of uh, contaminated soil, uh, just how careful they they really should be, and 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 the amount of people that would be needed, and the amount of land uh, to, to take care of this. And eventually, they're supposed to move this out of Fukushima to another prefecture. But uh, I think realistically. Uh, that may be decades away, if ever, because you can only imagine what other uh, areas yeah. would think of, of having all of this yes. uh, radioactive soil coming into their communities. Now, after not long after the disaster, the uh, the Japanese government uh, under Naoto Kan, I believe, had decided to decommission all of the nation's, I, I believe, 43 other nuclear power plants, the ones that were still working. But a few years later... Uh, after the uh, the new prime minister came to power, uh, uh, Shinzo Abe, he vowed to restart those plants. How many have now been restarted? And is the long-term plan to move the nation entirely away from nuclear, is that no longer the, the, the plan at this point? Uh, well, we have uh, three reactors that have restarted. And um, as you know, the, um, the current government of Prime Minister Abe uh, has taken quite a different course from Prime Minister Khan, who was uh, uh, with a different party, who was in power at the time of the disaster. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is uh, definitely a, a cautious attitude about restarting uh, these reactors, but um, there's no doubt that um, nuclear energy is um, uh, definitely um, in the mix. Uh, there are plans uh, to allow operators to uh, operate plants beyond 40 years, provided that they take measures for meeting uh, certain requirements. And uh, Japan, I think, is still looking to have about 20% um, of its power uh, come from nuclear plants uh, in the year uh, uh, 2030. That's the plan that's uh, still on the books, and we expect that by this time next year, uh, there will be between six and 12 more uh, nuclear plants that will resume commercial operations. I'm speaking with Stephen L. Herman of Voice of America News uh, on the fifth anniversary of the Fukushima earthquake, tsunami, and uh, nuclear meltdown disaster. 
Steve, a number of, uh, of TEPCO executives were finally recently indicted. What, what were they charged with? And, and frankly, what took so long to charge them? Was, is this also part and parcel of the close relationship between the Japanese government and the, uh, and the power company? Well, what happened was that um, uh, prosecutors decided not to indict any um, company executives, but that uh, decision was overturned by an independent citizen's uh, judicial panel, a very unusual process in Japan. We, we don't see it um, occurring that much. And that uh, citizen's panel mandated that three executives be charged on the grounds of not foreseeing the risks of a major tsunami uh, prior uh, to the disaster. And so uh, they have been indicted. Uh, in Japan, once you're indicted, uh, there is a very high rate of uh, a conviction. Uh, so they are facing charges of professional negligence resulting in death and injury. They're former executives now, but they included uh, the man, um, Sunehisa Katsumata, who was the chairman of TEPCO in 2011, and then two former vice presidents. Uh, 14,000 Japanese citizens filed the lawsuit against TEPCO officials, accusing them of ignoring research and not taking the necessary steps to prevent the catastrophe. So this is going to wind its way through the legal process. Mm -hmm. Most observers would say that convictions are almost inevitable, but we're probably talking about a process of some years for this to go through the legal system. And does that include, those people who were indicted, does that include the people at this point that the citizens of Japan feel uh, should be held accountable, or is there still a, a accountability sought uh, for you know members of the government and, and other members of, uh, of TEPCO? I think the focus will really be on the trial uh, of these um, uh, three executives, uh, I cannot foresee that uh, what is based on what's happened in the last five years uh, since the catastrophe, that all of a sudden we're going to see uh, a prosecutor somewhere uh, go after other officials or uh, m- members uh, of, the, of the government. Uh, the focus will really be on these three TEPCO executives. Do we know uh, how stable the remaining six nuclear reactors actually are at this point? Uh, in other words, uh, you know, are they in danger of, of blowing up, or have they been? Uh, are, are they are they generally stable, or, and are they still being constantly cooled by uh, water as they were seawater? Are they still pouring seawater on these things as they were for some time after the initial disaster? Right. Yeah, that that is that is the key. That is, there is an ongoing process to uh, to keep these um, uh, uh, reactors um, stable. Or uh, four of them uh, are either suffered meltdowns, or three of them definitely suffered meltdowns. One more is is is, is totally damaged and may have also had um, a meltdown as well. And then you have two other reactors on site that uh, are just much easier to be um, um, decommissioned as they would done in a standard procedure of the concern, as uh, you mentioned earlier from a quote of the, the, the plant manager there, is if there were to be another huge earthquake or a, a tsunami were to strike the facility mm. again, then yeah. you're, you're talking about a situation of, of of total chaos. Um, the, the odds of that, of course, are extremely tiny, but the odds of this happening 
yes. like it did on March 11, 2011, were also considered um, uh, to, to be very small, kind of black swan event, as it turned out. Um, so when we're talking about decades and decades, um, it is the world's most seismically active uh, uh, area, and there is always the possibility of a of a large quake, maybe not magnitude 9 again so soon in geological time, but magnitude 7, magnitude 8, definitely. And, uh, you know, when you have accidents, usually it's not just one thing going wrong, but a few things going wrong. Uh, so uh, we're, we're basically faced with the situation <laughs> that we have to have trust in Tokyo Electric Power Company to keep things under control. And, of course... Uh, I think if you were to take a survey both in and out of Japan, there wouldn't be a lot of uh, uh, trust in uh, in TEPCO. Yeah, uh, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, what has come? Uh, we've got just a, a few more uh, minutes here uh, with Steve uh, Herman. W- what has come of the nuclear rods? Since you mentioned how precarious things are, uh, I'm reminded of the nuclear rods that were precariously stored in an above ground uh, uh, tank. Uh, I think it was reactor number four, if I'm remembering it correctly. Uh, have those rods now been safely moved and stored elsewhere at this point? Or are they still sort of precariously balanced up there as they were in the days after the uh, the, the the quake? Yeah, the uh, uh, fuel rods um, were removed um, uh, from uh, the spent fuel pool at uh, reactor four. Uh, that was back in, what, 2014. Mm-hmm. But uh, you have a total of more than 1,500 fuel rod assemblies uh, uh, out there, and uh, most of those are deemed at, at risk, and they were transferred to um, uh, other buildings. So, uh, again, uh, as long as there is not some sort of um, cataclysmic um, mm-hmm. earthquake and, and tsunami again that were to uh, you know destroy the the, the entire site uh, that is 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 a one of among uh, a number of um, worries there um, but um, yeah we're, we're looking at uh, with reactor one uh, the, um, the the, the the spent fuel pool rods um, are, are supposed to be uh, removed, I believe, uh, next year. But, um, uh, you know, that that is going to be more challenging uh, as, as time goes on here. Uh, former uh, Prime Minister Naoto Khan uh, sort of echoed uh, your comments by saying that the uh, nuclear accident is still going on today. Uh, there are concerns about those rods even now. Uh, but finally, I, and and he, by the way, I should say, is uh, is actually protesting the reopening of the nuclear nuclear plants. He told the Telegraph that there is a clear conflict between government policy and the wishes of the public. Additional protective measures against tsunami tsunamis have been taken, like raising protective walls. He said, but I don't think they go far enough, and we shouldn't be building nuclear plants in areas where is there where there is a population to be affected. Uh, after the tsunami, he said Japan went without nuclear power for years, so it can be done. 
But uh, the uh, the current prime minister clearly has another idea. Uh, Steve, finally, what has become of those people? I recall uh, there was a skeleton crew who were asked to remain, actually ordered to remain at the plant during the peak of the crisis. Uh, as I recall, at the time, there were people who were elderly. They decided they had lived a good life and that they were willing to take their uh, to risk their lives to protect the rest of the nation. Uh, have there been deaths since that time directly related uh, to the people working uh, at the, you know, on the maintenance of those plants? Have those people survived, or, or have we lost a lot of them at this point? Well, there was a plant manager um, who did uh, die of cancer, uh, but uh, it was believed that, uh, not that that was necessarily a pre-existing con- condition, but you couldn't uh, definitively say that he died of cancer because of radiation exposure from the plant uh, because uh, he died uh, after quite a short time. Uh, as, as far as I know, I have not seen any credible reporting, and as you can imagine, there is a lot of scrutiny on Fukushima, mm-hmm. not only by the, the government, but a lot of independent uh, scientists around the world. And... Uh, uh, there are not, uh, at this point, uh, any uh, deaths that have been directly attributed to high levels of radiation exposure uh, from, the, from being on site at the accident itself. Obviously, you know, as I mentioned, we have one worker who in a year got 678 millisieverts uh, of, of exposure. Uh, that's very concerning. Um, and... Um, and, and then, of course, there's been a huge controversy about uh, examination of thyroids, children who were living there at the time. And uh, most scientists will tell you, you really need to look at decades of, of data before you can see any sort of trends to, to make some conclusions about whether there has been an increase in cancers or deaths uh, from this accident. So again, just as the cleanup's going to take decades, uh, I think uh, we're, we're, it, it may be decades before uh, we're, we're going to have any uh, definitive data about the human toll from uh, the radiation itself. Steve Herman in Bangkok, where he is the bureau chief for uh, Voice of America News. You can check out his work. You can and should check it out at voanews.com. And uh, I would argue, as importantly, on the Twitters, because he is a really good... Steve, I think you were uh, nominated for a Shorty Award for your reporting on Twitter, if I, if I recall. Uh, his, uh, his Twitter handle is W7VOA. And I have found you to be an invaluable resource there, resource there over the years, Steve, as, uh, you know, one quake hits uh, and another and, uh, you know, a, any number of news items coming out of uh, Japan and Asia. So good to talk to you uh, five years on after, uh, after Fukushima. And go ahead and, and just pencil it into your book. We'll give you a call uh, on the 10-year anniversary. And I suspect the exact same mess may still be going on five years from now. I, I, Brad, I think we would be having a very similar conversation five years from now. All right. Well, I'll just do a rerun and take the day off uh, on the 10th anniversary. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Stephen L. Herman from Voice of America News. Thank you, my friend. My pleasure. All right. We're late. So a quick break. And we are back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs>
fascinating, fascinating and, and troubling interview there with, uh, with Steve Herman. Yes, indeed, especially the part where, you know, the Japanese taxpayer is going to have to foot the bill for the entire thing for the next several decades. Yeah, and of course, that would be the same exact thing if it happened here in this country where we are still using the same type of nuclear plants that uh, that they're using in Japan. Yeah, and most people are not aware that here in the United States there was actually a law that was passed several decades ago that makes that 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 limits the liability of the nuclear industry in case of an accident so that they could get insurance. And if there is an accident, the insurance covers something like, you know, 75 million, but the billions after that are all covered by the US taxpayer. So a bailout in advance. Yes, if anything that's goes exactly wrong. what we have done. They get the profits, we get to pay for the cleanup. Well, in other words, because Wall Street is not willing to back up any kind of nuclear plant, so that's why the taxpayer has to do it. We're the ones that do that. All right, just to leave folks with some good news, <laughs> that's the least we can do here. Uh, the Vermont Secretary of State uh, tweeted uh, a little bit earlier today that by a 137 to 0 vote, uh, the Vermont House has passed automatic voter registration. Wow. So uh, good news for uh, Vermonters if that continues and is, is signed into law, as I suspect it will be. Add them to uh, Oregon and California out here who are all moving towards automatic voter registration. Take away the, the difficulty of participating in your democracy at all, uh, as it should be. So, so there's some good news. We'll leave you with that. You're welcome. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to Steve Herman of VOA News uh, for his uh, fantastic work out there. Always good to speak with him. If you missed any portion of today's program and my interview with Steve about Fukushima, you can download it for free at bradblog.com as ever, as all of our shows, as well as over at iTunes, where I hope you will subscribe for free. Uh, so you easily get each and every day's show. And while you're over there, give us a good review. It'll make it a little bit easier for the rest of the world to find the work that we are doing here at uh, on, on the Bradcast and over at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like on any of this. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can and should follow me on the Twitters and the Facebooks. And share, share, share like crazy. I am the Brad Blog over there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.